And he said, Lou, I can't listen to your talk. And it was like a two hour talk. I've got to interview some candidates. What should I ask them? So here's what I thought. This is a CEO of a company and it was a startup company, but 20 or $30 million. So this was in the early nineties or late eighties, 1990s and 1980s, not 1890s. But, uh, and I said, you got 15 minutes just to ask us one question. Tell me, tell, ask the candidate to describe the biggest thing he or she ever accomplished in her entire career. And then spend 10 or 15 minutes peeling the onion. When did you do it? Why did you do it? How did you get hired for the job? Did you volunteer for it? If you volunteered, why? If you were assigned, why did they assign you? Uh, walk through the team that the person had working for him or her. Uh, put Have them understand the plan. If they made the plan, how they managed to the plan. Walk through the biggest problem they solved in that accomplishment, the biggest decision they had to make. In 15 minutes, you'll know if you want to hire the person. It's time! Work! Play! Evolve! I want to connect the listeners to the best of the best. Welcome to the Evolve Broker Podcast. I'm your host, Pat Costello, the co-founder and principal at Evolve MGA. Our mission for the podcast is to bring the insurance industry the best of the best. My guest today is a hiring guru and best-selling author. His name is Lou Adler, and he wrote a famous book on recruiting, recruiting called Hire With Your Head. When it comes to recruiting, I don't believe there's anyone that has better strategies than Lou. His articles, quotes, and research can now be found in Inc. Magazine, Bloomberg, SHRM, and the Wall Street Journal. He is one of the top bloggers on LinkedIn's influencer program and has an amazing 1.3 million LinkedIn followers. In this episode, we discussed recruiting strategies that every insurance firm in the nation should be using. Please download, subscribe, and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening on and feel free to reach out to me at pat at evolvedbrokerpodcast.com with any comments or suggestions for the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by First Insurance Funding. First is the leading premium finance company in insurance and is known throughout the industry for their personalized service and quote flexibility. If you're tired of sending quote requests for smaller premiums to multiple companies, not leaving enough time to negotiate larger opportunities, then choose First as your primary financing source and experience the first difference today. Without further ado, here's Lou. Lou, welcome to the Evolved Broker Podcast. Hey, happy to be here, Patrick. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Of course, of course. I'm fired up to talk about recruiting because I know that is your specialty. I know you have a best-selling book called Hire With Your Head, and I'm really interested in having the audience take away some strategies that they can implement into their recruiting practices or maybe they can look for in outside recruiting firms that they may work with. I just want to ask you right off the bat, if you're, if there's an entrepreneur that's starting a business and they're looking to make their first hire, or if maybe there's a larger company that has a recruiting firm that's, or excuse me, a recruiting practice within their company that's looking to optimize their process or their strategy to be more effective, where do you think those people should start when they think about recruiting? Well, you asked two questions that were totally different. You said, what would an entrepreneur do and what would a company do to start? Okay. So that's actually, at least we're going to get 45 minutes just out of that. Okay. But let me kind of narrow it down to a minute or two. So I was on a call earlier today with 150 people in the learning and development field. And one of the people on the call said, what's the most important question of all time? And actually I said, well, I'm going to go back 30 years to tell you what I told some CEO of a company who was starting a company. And he said, Lou, I can't listen to your talk. And it was like a two hour talk. I've got to interview some candidates. What should I ask them? So here's what I told you. This is a CEO of a company and it was a startup company, but 20 or $30 million. So this was in the early nineties or late eighties, okay. 1990s, 1980s, not 1890s. But, uh, and I said, you got 15 minutes just to ask us one question. Tell me, tell, ask the candidate, to describe the biggest thing he or she ever accomplished in her entire career. And then spend 10 or 15 minutes peeling the onion. When did you do it? Why did you do it? How'd you get hired for the job? 
Did you volunteer for it? If you volunteered, why? If you were assigned, why did they assign you? Uh, walk through the team that the person had working for him or her. Uh, put Have them understand the plan. If they made the plan, how they managed to the plan. Walk through the biggest problem they solved in that accomplishment, the biggest decision they had to make. In 15 minutes, you'll know if you want to hire the person. Uh, because you'll have to understand what you want this person to do and see if they're compatible. So that was uh, what I call <clears throat> the biggest or the most important interview question of all time, most significant accomplishment question. You can look on LinkedIn okay. and find that as well. And you got probably 1.4 million reads. It was the first article I wrote on LinkedIn about eight or 10 years ago and had quite a few people. And it's the heart and soul of the book. Okay. Dig deep into the person's accomplishments and you really get a good sense of who they are and what they can contribute. Now, your last question is implementing that company-wide is the key to scaling everything up. So okay. uh, that was the answer to both your questions. Okay, got you. So just to clarify, the significant accomplishment question, do you limit it to one accomplishment or is it? are you trying to get multiple? Or does that matter? Oh, yeah. It, the reality of it is, is that's what, that was the answer to your second part of the question. Yeah. How do you scale that up and implement it? Right. That's the heart and soul of it to know if to fit. But the reality of it is when I and I've worked on more than a thousand search assignments, I always ask the hiring manager and they always give me a list of skills, experience and competencies. And I say, yeah. that's not a job description. That's a person description. Right. A person doesn't have skills, experience and competencies. So put that in the parking lot. What do you want the person to do? Yep. And I really get people to talk about the work that needs to be done. And it always turns out that any job can be defined as six or seven performance objectives, key performance objectives. Yeah. They define a task, the action, the result, and some kind of metric. Right. I so, like that word, performance. I feel like focusing on the performance over their profile. Right. So I then I so now the question, now once I know, let's assume it's for a marketing person, hey, you got to launch a new product uh, in six months and it and across North America. So then the question, the most significant accomplishment question would be a variation of the biggest thing you've ever done. It would be more tailored. Hey, we got to launch a new product in North America that has this kind of resources, this kind of marketing budget. Walk me through something you've accomplished that's most comparable to that. So what we do is we ask that same question for each of the performance objectives defined as the work that needs to be done. I mean, in essence, that's now, that's the whole concept right there. Getting yeah. people to do it is not insignificant, but that's the heart and soul of performance-based hiring. Okay, okay. That's a great start, too. And that's actually one of our rapid-fire questions at the end was, what's the most important interview question of all time? So, glad well, now we can, We're done, right? So we can end the <laughs> podcast the most meaningful. Lou, I, I'm confident that we can get some even more solid content out of this conversation. Well, so. I don't know. You'll have to really push yeah, yeah. hard to we'll get We'll see. That. We'll so. see. Well, one, one thing I really liked on, um, I believe it was a LinkedIn post that you had, you were comparing Jim Collins, um, book, good to great in the, the analogy of the bus, getting the people on the right seats on the bus to the interview process and having the interview interviewer take the candidate on a short drive. Can you describe what the short drive is so people can get a sense for how they should approach maybe these initial interviews with people that are not necessarily looking for a new job. Well, I think that's really the issue is, uh, we don't need to get into good to great, but basically Collins in his book said, put people on the bus and as long as you get the right people. I said, no, you gotta put people on the bus going in the right direction. So that was kind of, I actually met him and he didn't like that. So he didn't want it. Ah, I was gonna <laughs> ask him to do a testimonial book. Well, if you didn't say that in the book, I would have written it. But yeah, so there. the idea that I have is that when you hire people, too, there's too often this idea of just hiring people for the start date. Yeah. Uh, how much money do I get? Uh, what skills do I have? And let's be as efficient as we can hiring for the start date. And in my idea that the comparison is that's a metro bus going from point A to point B. Mm. I got this much money to spend. I got this much budget. I got this target. Here we're going here. And hey, Patrick, if you want to do that work, we're in the game. Well, to me, that's why we have so much churn and dissatisfaction. I say, let's go on a tour bus. So the idea I have is uh, if I talk to a candidate, I said, hey, would you be open to explore a situation if it was clearly superior to what you're doing today? I'm dealing with a bunch of engineering spots from mid-level to senior level. If one of those made sense, let's talk. 
Well, that kind of says, and the candidate says, well, what's the money? So it doesn't really matter what the money is. Let's see if one of the jobs is a career move. We're going to pay people between 75 and 200. I'm sure one of the jobs will make sense. So I, I really, let's have a conversation uh, and let's have a discussion. So I say, sell the discussion or sell the ride, not the destination. Mm-hmm. And I think too many people have, oh, we're just going to, I want to talk to people quick, quickly. I want to talk to them efficiently. Let's just get it done as quickly as possible. I said, no, spend more time with fewer people. So put the right people on the bus. Uh, and as long as are the right people, pre-qualify them, uh, you'll have an opportunity to get to know people for the long term. And then you can hire for the long term. Yeah. as opposed to hiring for the start date. So that's the concept of the bus. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Can you break down the 30% rule? Because that seems like it comes into the equation pretty quickly if if we're on this bus ride, on this bus tour. Yeah. Well, well people, so let me kind of go through the scenarios. Let's assume I was recruiting you and I say, hey, Patrick, would you be open to explore a situation if it were clearly superior to what you're doing today, which is what we train recruiters to do. And you say, well, I might be, well, what's the compensation? And I said, well, Patrick, it doesn't really matter what the compensation is if it's not a good career move. Let's first see if it's a career move. So at some point in time, candidates would say that. So I would then say, Patrick, in my mind, we have to achieve a win-win hiring situation, which means at the anniversary date, you're still satisfied with the job and the hiring manager is still satisfied and glad they hired you. Mm -hmm. So to get to the 30%, I use what I call the 30% non-monetary solution meaning the non-monetary components of a job have to be at least a 30% increase. That consists of some job stretch. That could be 5 or 10% of it. Could be uh, more satisfying work. That could be 5 or 10%. It could be a job with uh, more impact. That could be 5 or 10%. But most important, the growth rate's got to be at least 5 or 10 or most of that. Mm-hmm. So you had all of these non-monetary factors. they got to be at least 30%. Uh, so I said, over the course of the interviewing process, as we drive through this bus or take a discussion, we get, you've got to evaluate these non-monetary factors as well as you have to evaluate the, sh- the start date package. Mm-hmm. The money is just one thing, but this money isn't what's going to drive your success and satisfaction. It's the work you're doing. we got to get yeah. to at least a 30% stretch over the course of that first year. If we get there, there's a high probability we'll get this one-one hiring positive outcome. Okay. Okay. I think that's a good reiteration of, of, of where to focus beyond comp, right? Because a lot of times it, comp is like the primary focus of those That's initial conversations. In, in reality is, is that most people I know for a fact, yeah, once you're above a threshold, yeah, whatever the number is, you have to be above a threshold. But once you get above that threshold, this other stuff matters more. Mm-hmm. But most people just, oh, I got to get the most comp. But they ignore the stuff that matters more. Yeah, I got an ill-defined lateral transfer, but I'm making all this money. Yeah, but 30 days later, you're disappointed because the job sucks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, seriously. I like how, Lou, you have on your LinkedIn like banner page, you have the optimal formula for hiring. Can you can you break down that formula? Yeah, sure. Well, it's called the hiring formula for success. And it's I summarize in the book, I think a whole chapter on it. Uh, it took a long time to figure it out, but it sounds easy. It's the ability to do the work in relationship to fit. That drives motivation because motivation is so important it's squared. And that equals results. So it's ability in relationship to fit drives motivation. Motivation is so important it's squared. The idea, ability is actually the easiest part to measure. I mean, there's hard skills, technical skills. It's also the soft skills, the organizational skills, the management skills. So it's all the stuff, this the basic raw competency to get the work done. The fit factors, though, are the real most important. Do you really want to do that work? You might be competent to do it, but if you're not motivated to do it, you'll be underperforming. Uh, not only competent, but you also have to be motivated to yeah. do that work, but also the environment is important. If you don't like your hiring manager, let me just finish this and get it. You don't like the hiring manager and you're competent and want to do the work, you'll still suck. Uh, So all of these issues, the fit factors would drive motivation. And that's why it's hard to make the assessment properly. Uh, Just most people just measure ability. If somebody doesn't measure that, they just measure hard skills, give you a test and they pay you a lot of money and you take the job and realize that there's, it's not complicated. You just got to think about all the factors that, drive motivation and performance. And naturally what the hiring formula for success does, it lets people understand on both sides of the desk, what's going to make this person a successful hire. And from the person's standpoint, the candidate's standpoint, is this a work I want to do and will I be successful at it? So you got to look at both sides of the equation. How do you measure the motivation? That's actually, that's actually not hard. 
So during the during the most significant accomplishment question, and remember, I'm asking it multiple times, but in the first one, I asked you, Patrick, tell me about the best, biggest thing you ever did. Yep. Hey, why don't you give me some examples as I'm peeling in, give me some examples of where you went the extra mile. Mm-hmm. Uh, where'd you do work that you really like to do and uh, accomplish it? And what kind of work didn't you like to do? So I'm always asking about motivation in each accomplishment. And then I'm starting to ask, remember, I've asked, tell me about your biggest team accomplishment, your biggest individual accomplishment. What did you do this year? What did you do last year? By asking the accomplishment question multiple times, you start seeing this trend line of performance over time. And is that performance individual contributor skills as a team skills or whatever it is. And I'm starting to see lots of examples of motivation. Mm -hmm. And where do you go the extra mile without having to be asked to do it? You kind of, oh, I built this team. I coached this person. Oh, when I was a sales rep, I started uh, taking my peers out with me on cold calls. And I really like doing that. You start listening to this over five or 10 years, you start seeing where this person is going to be intrinsically motivated to do work without being told. Mm -hmm. Then you got, then if you can, map that to the real job, you got a hero right there. So that's how you get it. Critical. Yeah. But it's usually a function of the hiring manager. You got a crappy hiring manager. And that's the only reason I became a recruiter. I I, I was running a company when I was 32. I was on a good track. And I was promised some big divisions. I mean, I was with a big company doing real well. Mm-hmm. I hated the group president. You know, I argued every other week. Yeah. And I quit four times in one year. And I said, screw it. I can't deal with this guy. I loved the job, but I couldn't deal with him. Uh, and I told the chairman of the company, I'm quitting. Uh, and he said, what if I get rid of the guy? I said, you're two years. He's got a contract. So he said, well, we'll get rid of him in two years. And I can't deal with that. So, yeah. um, so I know, and even in our track record, we track why people perform and it's always the hiring manager is such a critical component of a good person will excel if they got a good manager. Um, mm-hmm. and some managers are just hard to deal with and they underperform. So that's really one of the critical fit factors that drives motivation. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. One of the, things you mentioned that people should do in the interview process is to conduct a two-way interview. How do you set up an interview so that it can be two-way that you can kind of get feedback from both parties or, or questions from both parties um, where both people are getting the information that's, that, that's valuable, that leads to a win-win situation? Well, here's how I prep my candidates uh, because likely, obviously I would like to train every hiring manager uh, who I work with, and I kind of get the hiring managers to understand the job. Uh, but even then, they forget it. So this is the part about scaling. So what I tell when I prep a candidate, and I prep thousands of candidates, um, I always tell, if you don't feel that the hiring manager is asking you about your performance objectives, hey, and in the form of, hey, one of the things we need to accomplish is launch this new product line and tell me something you've done that's comparable, If that's not the way the interview is going, you, the candidate, have to intervene right away. Five or 10 minutes into the interview, you feel like it's going in the wrong direction. Just say stop. You don't have to say stop. You just try to interrupt and say, you know, when I talked to the recruiter, when I read your job posting, it wasn't clear what the performance objectives for this job were, some of the challenges this person would face in the job. Mm -hmm. Would you mind clarifying that to me? Because I'd like to give you examples of work that I've done that are most comparable. So a candidate has to do that very quickly in the interview if you feel that he or she's being judged on stuff that doesn't predict success. Okay. Now, that forces the hiring manager to, ooh, this candidate's kind of is a pretty forceful candidate. Just asking the question will brand the candidate as assertive, even if you're low-key you'll still be assertive. You can be an introvert and ask that question. You will come across as a very powerful, insightful candidate. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, you got to answer the question properly. We've given an example of uh, the work you've done that's related. So I always tell candidates to write down all their strengths, technical skills, collaboration, team skills, problem solving, and give a write a paragraph or two example of work you've done that proves the strength. Mm-hmm. So then when you say, hey, Give me an example of something you've done where you've launched a product. You already have the example in your mind. So that's how I prep candidates. But the first thing is you got to ask the question to the hiring manager mm-hmm. if it's not natural. Mm-hmm. I just just asking a question, you're going to be in the top half right away. And if you ask the question properly, you'll get an offer. I mean, it's almost like guaranteed. So that was the secret sauce for candidates. Um, and a lot of candidates are reluctant to do it. Uh-huh. Uh, but if you do, but a good candidate will ask the question. I mean, it's what good people do. 
Yeah. I mean, if you, uh, it happens all the time. A good person wouldn't say, I'm not going to take this job unless I know what the challenges are. Yeah. Bottom half takes a job just to get paid. The top half says, I'm not taking a job uh, unless I know if this job makes sense to me. So it kind of brands you as the right kind of, at least put you in a top half, top third, just asking a question. Yeah. A lot of hiring managers or a lot of recruiters will have just inherent bias or um, maybe like subconscious judgment when they meet a candidate in person or um, when they're trying to figure out if the candidate is the right person for the role. What's a good strategy to remove bias or judgment from that shouldn't be included in the interview process by the hiring manager? Well, again, let me kind of, I can give this good story, but let me give you, I'll yeah. give you two stories. Uh, and this is if you're either the hiring manager, not necessarily the candidate, but I'll give you the candidate workarounds. So I had an office uh, and it was Los Angeles. I just had an office in Southern California. I live in Orange County, but I had an office in LA and I'd go there once or twice a week. So I got there real early to beat the traffic, say 6.30. And I had a candidate who was going to come in at 7.30. So I was the only one in the building. Uh, the, certainly the only one in the office. And talk about first impression bias. Candidate comes in at 7.30 and the door was locked and he's knocking on the door and locking. I said, oh, this candidate's a bunch of, we can't even open the damn door. I mean, literally, I didn't like the, I never saw the candidate. I just made a judgment about the person being incompetent because they couldn't open the door. Turned out I had the door locked and it, it was a good candidate. But let me tell you, first impression bias is real and it it's formed in a microsecond. And if you don't like somebody, you ask tough questions. If you do like somebody, you ask uh, softball questions. You really, uh, you just want the person to be yeah, good. Right. Because uh, most of the hiring men don't like to interview. So that's, now, how do you overcome that? It's hard real time. So I'm going to give you another story that I told this morning. This happened 30 plus, maybe 40 years ago, a long time ago. I had a major client in Southern California. It was for a cost accounting manager. The, dot, the compensation today would have been 125 to 150K on that order. I was a contingency recruiter, and some of people would know on your podcast would know that, but I only got a fee if I, uh, the person got hired. Mm -hmm. And at 150K, and my fee was 30%, which I've never changed in ever, and I still don't. I don't do any recruiting anymore, but I never adjusted my fees. Uh, so 30%, 150, that's $45,000. This isn't, obviously, it wasn't that much, but it was in 1985. Okay. Uh, Still a lot of money at then, but yeah. a lot of money today. It's 45K. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so on, he had to meet the CFO, but prior to my candidate meeting the VP controller, the VP of manufacturing, the director of internal audit, and the director of financial planning all wanted to hire the candidate. They loved the candidate. CFO was just going to meet the candidate for a personality interview and they were going to make the offer the next day. Well, the candidate called me up right after the interview with the CFO. He said it was less than 15 minutes. CFO told him uh, he'd get back to him next week. So I know it didn't go up because everybody knew it was going to make the offer the next day. So I had to call the CFO up, and he was a bear. And I finally got him on the phone. He said, you can't, it's just too quiet. Can't do the job. He's just a mealy mouse, weak guy, too introverted. Couldn't possibly handle the job. So I just pushed back. I got New York guy. I pushed back. I said, are you aware of what everybody else said this person wanted to do? Uh, he said, well, I can implement a new cost system. I said, yeah, you're right. You're implementing an ABC cost accounting system in a Cormac and Dodge platform. You move into an SAP ERP. I knew this job inside ABC stands for activity-based costing. Never been done before on that big a platform. And I said, "Did you? are you aware that this candidate accomplished something very similar at a major automotive plant. I named the plant, I named a company. I said it was a union plant, bigger than what you've got, uh, more facilities than what you've got, and he was successful. And because he was successful, he was asked to do this worldwide. It was because of his soft-spoken nature and his technical competency that the union bought in, the IT people bought in, and the manufacturing, the cost people bought in. And you just lost an opportunity to hire this person because his wife is going down to get her MD degree at UC Irvine, which was the medical school down here. Uh, and she's going to be in a residency for four years. And you just lost an opportunity to hire an outstanding person because of that personality. Mm -hmm. Well, the CFO was just dumbstruck that I pr produced evidence to overcome his bias. Yep. He said, I'll talk to him again tomorrow. So I had the candidate write up that accomplishment that I just described. And I said, write the accomplishment up. So I'm kind of prepping the candidate. And I said, then hand it to the CFO when you get in there. 
And, and I told her, I said, would you mind just reviewing this? Uh, here's a summary of my accomplishment that I did. And I just love to review it with you. CFO went word through word through each of the bullet points, asked him to clarify it. Hour and a half later, he said, I'm going to hire you. Hired him. And then that CFO gave us 12 assignments over the next two years. Wow. And he started only defining work as a series of performance objectives and had candidates write up their performance objectives and had the interviewers review them. Okay. This is what... So this is kind of, I don't know what your question was anymore, but but the, it had to do with bias. bias. But you can never yeah. out yell a hiring manager, but you can out fact them with evidence. Now, I tried yeah. to out yell them because I'm from New York and from the Bronx. It uh, doesn't work, but <laughs> evidence does work. And, yeah. you, and you can be soft-spoken, you can be quiet. Uh, my style is definitely in your face, manufacturing kind of guy, but as long as I've had recruiters who've been soft-spoken, but have evidence, I've had candidates that are soft-spoken with evidence and that wins that every day of the week. That's the only way you can overcome bias is with evidence, not personality or uh, ideas or out yelling someone, but evidence yeah. works. Yeah. 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 That's a, a Sorry really, for the long stories, but that no, it's works. good. It's good. It's good to think about uh, when you're in that process because bias is real. You know, oh, it is real. It's there. Even I have bias. I mean, I yeah. still I have to really fight when I meet a candidate whom I don't like and fight when I meet a candidate I do like. Yeah. Do you think there's any different strategy that recruiters need to use when they're targeting someone from Gen Z? Like something that would make something more attractive to that the particular folks that are coming out of college right now? Well, I think you've got to, under, so let me just make this statement. I'm 76 years old. You're probably 30-ish. Uh, I don't know that human nature's changed dramatically over the past 50 years since I've been in the workforce and went to college. And I'm even stuck talking to some of my uh, old fraternity brothers who graduated, you know, 55 years ago. Uh -huh. You start thinking about human nature hasn't changed. The work environment's changed. We've made work cheaper. But I don't think people have really um, changed fundamentally. So if I was going to focus on that, and I give, I, we're working with one client last year we worked with who was hiring engineers. We just gave them a chart that showed, it didn't, didn't say the win-win, that 30% solution, but it, it showed work, both what you got on the start date and also some of the learning platform and some of the work-life rebalance and some of the leadership teams and some of the projects you're going to be assigned. So we actually said, hey, let's make decision about all of these things that you're going to be looking at, not just the start date, which is not unimportant, but all the things you're going to be doing. And when you did that, people really started understanding the work as this is a career move. And yeah. if you go on a one or two or three year learning platform where you're going to be accelerate your learning, you're going to be in the game and you're going to be able to do a lot of uh, different things. So I tell candidates, don't make strategic decisions using tactical information, which merely is focus on the long term as well as the short term and try to look at them all in balance. Okay. As long as you get a competitive offer, but the work in the environment makes sense for you, you're going to be well off. Yeah. If you just look at the competitive package and go into a job without understanding what the work is, it's problematic if you're going to be successful or not to be satisfied or not. Yeah. Okay. Do you think personality testing should be used in the recruiting process? Okay. So let me give you a no. Yes and no. So let me kind of, uh, I took my first personality test, which was a version of the DISC or the predictive index in 1980. And, and it basically said, so this is, you know, well, it had to be what, 44 years ago, so I was probably still reasonably young, but who knows. And it, it basically said, well, it said, Lou, you're really an extroverted sales kind of guy. You're not a very good analyst. This is what the test said. Mm -hmm. I said, that's a bunch of bullshit. I'm actually an engineer and I'm really good at it. I just don't want to do it. I'd rather go to party and play softball and do all this other stuff and drink beer than uh, do the do the insight, but I'm actually better at the insight. So personality tests only measure competencies or preferences, not competencies. Mm -hmm. They don't say if you're any good at it. Mm -hmm. uh, they just say what you like to do. So that's a fundamental flaw in a personality test. An IQ test, however, is a very good predictor. If you're not smart, um, you're not going to, I mean, I'm sorry to say, if you're not smart, you're not going to make it. If you're reasonably smart in the top half, you can be successful by working hard with the right organization. Yeah. If you're not smart, uh, fine. I'm not going to go there. It's not the people I deal with. So I don't want to offend anybody, but you know, if you well, actually, if you're not smart, you wouldn't even know what that means. So <laughs> you're not going to be offended on this call. Uh, I, yeah. I have noticed uh, 
personality testing systems, that intelligence factor is pretty hard for a lot of them to measure. The IQ part? Yeah. Actually, the, it's not. I the mean, IQ it's, part. Well, actually, there was this test called the Wonderlick, and you look up the Wonderlick, which yeah. is a test that you could get from. So I'll give you a story about the Wonderlick. The Wonderlick says if you get a, it's a 12 minute test, you got these questions. They're actually numerical and verbal tests. So, I mean, a real test. Yeah. And if you get a 20 or so, that's kind of average. Yeah. Uh, and if you get 30, and I had one client that said, you had to get 30, which would put you an IQ of 130 or so. Uh, so, I had this one, and after I had given this Wonderlick test, I always used to give it. Uh, always gave the Wonderlick test, and you can look it up. And I think there's still football players. Uh, we're given the Wonderlick test up until about two years ago. So it's, and I met the people who founded the Wonderlick test, Charlie Wonderlick. We almost uh, created a joint venture together. Nonetheless, I meet this woman and I, I'm going to say it was 1995, maybe it was 2000. And I knew she was brilliant. And after I talked to people, I just knew uh, what they're not, know what they're going to get in the Wonderlick. And this woman was great. So it was an HR spot. So she takes the Wonderlick and gets 16, which couldn't make sense. And I call up the people when I said, this doesn't make sense. I know this woman is very capable and smart. Yeah. She even did well in school. Uh, he said, well, is English her first language? Because if, because you get, it's a time-based test where you take these problems, uh, you got to understand English. I see. Uh, and I said, and I said, no, she's perfect English. So I call her up and I said, and I talked to this woman. I said, is English your first language? She says, no, Italian's my first language. Uh -huh. French is my second language. I went to Quebec, but I learned English through school but no accent whatsoever. Wow. So she, so they said, why don't you ever take this other version of it that's not timed? And she aced it out. And it's, so then I placed her at a major international company in HR. Okay. And about three years later, she became a vice president. I mean, everyone was this great. She, I placed her in Southern California, then moved to New York and moved to corporate headquarters in Geneva or something overseas, but a big consumer products company. Okay. I just, but it's interesting. So, I, But there are studies that show that IQ can be measured and it's also highly predictive, but it's not, but the fit factors are, yeah, again, more critical. And I think that's the issue is that skills and smartness can go so far, but the fit factors are what really drive on the job success, satisfaction and performance. Yeah. There's no doubt that personality tests, they only kind of give you like a, a small section of the overall candidate profile. And I haven't heard of the wonder look, but I have, the, the one personality test that does a decent job of measuring intelligence that I've seen is called the caliper in specifically in their abstract reasoning section. That is like, it's good. I think caliper's fine. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's one, like if for anyone listening, it's like, I want to say it's like 300 bucks a test or something like that. So it's uh you just got to be kind of, let's say this even predictive index. Uh -huh. And I've, met the PhDs running predictive index. I said, you know, your personality test really doesn't predict, even though they call it predictive index. They have an IQ component, which does, but actually I talked to someone who actually talked to this president of predictive index. If you only could pick one, the IQ test or the personality part, what would you say? Well, the personality part is okay, but the IQ part is valuable. Mm -hmm. But again, the idea that I have is, if a candidate doesn't want to take the test right away, then uh, it's it's limiting some of the best people and a lot of passive candidates. If I call you up, Patrick, and mm -hmm. said you're not, you're not going to jump, but you got to take before I can talk to you, you got to take the IQ test. You're going to say, "Bull, bull, I'm not going to do that." Yeah. So the idea is, the only people who would actually take it are people who are actively looking. And the and I was a good friend of mine, which was. Uh, I'm trying to go with the guy, like he passed away, but president of another testing company, Profiles International. I knew the guy was a good friend of mine. Uh, he said, Lou, I sell tests. He said, although I agree with you that it's uh, everybody, and I want everyone to take the test, the finalists only, but that's three tests. He said, if I only sell three tests instead of 500 tests, I don't have a big, good business. So I'm mm -hmm. selling tests for everybody before they, as soon as they apply. So it's a different marketplace. So you mm -hmm. understand why people post jobs, why people sell tests, why people sell job postings. A lot of it is to screen out the candidates who are who've just applied nilly willy. The yeah. reality is that some of these things are good at the right step in the process. And unfortunately, people abuse the process and put them uh, at the beginning of the process. And I say, no, you should do it with just finalists only. That's a, a good way to put it. I mean, it's got to be a smooth process and you don't want to 
inhibit people from just from even starting the process. So I, I hear you. You're right. I have a lot of good people. That's why I said, let's just drive the bus. We'll see if it makes sense. Now, you know, if this job's a career move and it's, hey, Patrick, I got to put yeah. you through the process, just like I got to put everyone. You'll go through it because you now realize this is a good career move, but you're not going to go through it with just because of the hope that the job represents a career move. Yeah, for sure. And on the career move, I think that's a great transition point. I like how you clarify the difference between a job and a career and how you're pushing people towards careers. Can you provide a little bit more color on a job versus a career? Yeah, sure. I mean, if you go in, so during my interview, I asked candidates, why did you, part of the internet, hey, why'd you go from job A to job B? And candidates always said, I went it for, it was, I thought it was a good career move. I said, well, what happened? Why didn't it work out? He said, well, they promised me this and it wasn't that. They said, well, why'd you go from job B to job C? Oh, they promised me a career move. Well, did it work out? No, it didn't because they didn't promise me. Once I see that change, why people change jobs, they all say they're doing it for career moves. But if you can't define that 30% solution, impact, growth, satisfaction, and job mix, uh, you're really just hoping that it will be a career move, mm -hmm. but more times the hope is unfulfilled. So, yeah. so in my mind, what I do to tell, and this is what I tell, let's assume you're a candidate for this director of marketing job, Patrick. Yep. I would say, and I've kind of taken out, hey, Patrick, I think you'd be a good candidate for this job. And I kind of describe where the growth could be in the team you're going to build and the challenges you're going to face. I said, Patrick, over the next two to three weeks, we're going to interview half a dozen candidates. But there's a good chance. And that's all we're going to interview. There's a good chance that you'll be one of the, you'll get an offer. But if you're going to get an offer, this is what I'm going to ask you before we actually present the offer. Think about this job, Patrick. Now, three weeks later, and I'm telling you three weeks ahead of time what you're going to get. I said, three weeks from now, if we make you an offer, I'm going to say, forget the money, Patrick. Do you really want this job? Mm -hmm. And you have to tell me why you want the job. And you'll say you want it because you'll think you want it. And maybe you'll compete and you get a counter offer, get another offer. But if you can't define why this job's a career move, meaning some of the challenges you're going to face, who you're going to be working with, the resources that are there, why it's intrinsically motivating, why this is a good step in your career. If you can't clearly define that and haven't discussed that with all your friends and family and coworkers, you're going to be unhappy and we won't make you the offer. Yeah. But over the next two to three weeks, we're, we're committed to get you that information. Yeah. And that's the answer of uh, why when you go through the interview process, it's got to be two way. We, the company have to make a decision about you, but yeah. you, the candidate and your family and friends, you don't make the decision alone. Yeah. You make it about all the criteria, but if you don't have the, but I guarantee when you go home and talk to your significant other, say, hey, I'm looking at a job and the person's going to say, what's the money? Yeah. Not about the money. It's about the job. Right. Because if you can't define about the job and why it's a good career move for you, you'll it's, it's success is unlikely. I appreciate you providing perspective and feedback from the candidate standpoint of view as well. Just because I think when they're going through that process, it's like they, they I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you want to achieve that happiness, that job satisfaction or that career satisfaction, excuse me. And, uh, you know, you don't want to just be jumping ship for the sake of jumping ship for the wrong reasons or just for comp. Right. And most people Which do it just for comp. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. super common. Super common. Well, one more relevant topic that I hear about all the time today is hiring for diversity. How do you think companies should hire for diversity? Well, to me, it's a profound question. So let me kind of, I'm going to describe my first assignment, which was in 1978. And then I'll bring it back to today very quickly okay. and why it has an impact on diversity. First job assignment. And again, I remember I was running a manufacturing company with 300 people. Mm -hmm. uh, I quit. Uh, and the next day I'm on my own in a little office, um, not making any money. I mean, this was the situation I had, but I had one search assignment and it was for a plant manager um, and it was an automotive company and the hiring, the president whom I knew was, I told him I was leaving and he gave me the assignment right away. Mm -hmm. He said, I need someone with 10 to 15 years experience, has to have an engineering degree, has background in this in automotive and has to have these manufacturing processes. This is what he said. I said, Mike, that is not a job description. That is a person description. A job doesn't have skills, experience, and competencies. A person has those things. Mm -hmm. Let's put the person description in the parking lot. What do you want the person to do? He said, I would need someone to turn around the plant. So I walked through the manufacturing plant, seven things that were totally terrible. We figured it out now. I said, okay, I'll find somebody who can do that work. 
-hmm. made my first placement in three to four weeks. I've never used the job description, listing skills, experience, and competencies. I always define the work as six to five or six, as I said, performance objectives, key performance objectives, mm-hmm. define the task, the result, the action, and some metric. Yeah. I then started doing this and started becoming pretty successful in that process, written a bunch of books about it. Uh, but about 10 years ago, somebody said, well, is this legal? Well, I actually had some good lawyers who said it was legal. Mm-hmm. But this was a big company and they said, I don't know if we can do this. It doesn't seem legal when you look at all the labor stuff. Mm-hmm. So I talked to the guy at Littler Mendelssohn, which is the number one labor attorney in the country. Talked to the number one labor attorney at Littler Mendelssohn, David Goldstein. Uh, and I said, David, what do you think about defining work as a series of performance objectives? He said, I don't know, but I'll read your book. He read the book. He said, this is the most profound thing you, anybody can do to improve diversity hiring. As long as someone can do that work, yeah, they're perfectly qualified. Doesn't matter if they're old or young, black or white, green or yellow, physically right. um, If they can do the work, they deserve it. It's skills, experience, and competencies don't define the work. Performance objectives define yeah. the work and are equally as objective. Yeah. Too many HR people think objective is 10 years experience. No, they got to design a new circuit to perform uh, in a certain way. And it doesn't matter if they have five years or 10 years yeah. or 100 years. Yeah. It doesn't matter. So it's yeah. by defining the work and proving they can do the work, you've just opened up the talent pool to all diverse candidates of all straight uh, stripes and colors yeah. and backgrounds yeah. and sexual preferences. And I, that's really the key to opening up the talent pool. Define the work as a series of performance objectives. I really like that philosophy. Focusing on performance. Can can they do the task at hand? Can they achieve results? Right? Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I, I think that uh, should be first and foremost. And um, that that should be the basis of, of who's doing the job. Right. And I think it's that's absolutely, uh, but it's also motive, but guys, not an ability to do it. It's yeah. motivation to do it in that environment. And right. that's, that's where those factors that, and that's really the purpose of the interview. You can mm-hmm. pretty well figure out if a person's competent to competent to do the work. Are they going to be motivated yeah. to do it in the situation I have here? That's really where most of the decision, the interview should take place. Yeah. The first interview, half hour, 45 minutes is a person competent. Yeah. Second interview and third interview, all of those fit factors determine someone's motivated and can do it with the people and with the, particularly the hiring manager and with that environment. That's yeah. where the rest of the interview should take place. Got it. Competence and motivation. Yep. That makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. Well, my, my last question before we jump into our five rapid fire questions is what are your thoughts on the great resignation? And do you see any trends for recruiting in the next five years? Well, let me just say a great resignation's over. Uh, and it's now some people are seeing the after effects. Oh, it's not over hiring all these people. No, it's over. Mm-hmm. And this is June 2022. It's over. Uh, and I think companies, candidates are realizing, hey, I can't leave uh, for just the money. Uh, I got to leave for something more substantive. Mm-hmm. So if companies can't define the work as a series of performance objectives, they're not going to get the best people. They're going to still getting these people who are willing to uh, take jobs, ill-defined jobs for money reasons. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people who fill jobs that way. And there's people getting laid off, good people getting laid off who will take jobs. But I urge those people to don't make long-term decisions using short-term information. Mm-hmm. The new trend, now I got to be uh, full disclosure here. I made the same contention in 1997 that the great resignation or people should hire for the long-term debt. Was I successful in a narrow segment? Yes. I still believe it to be true. I think the great resignation exposed the fundamental flaw that we're experiencing and too many people making long-term decisions, too much money has been spent on filling jobs, not hiring the best people for the long-term. So Mm -hmm. in my own mind, it's over. Will corporate America, will candidates finally realize that it's over and take jobs for the right reason? That I don't know, but it should be over. And I think people might argue it, that it's not over because they're hiring good people quickly. In my mind, uh, the idea of it is fundamentally, people know it's the boom. It's just like a boom. It crashed. Yeah. Jobs are no longer plentiful. You're not going to just take money because people need to, and people are going to be making better decisions on both sides of the desk. Okay. Okay. Got you. I appreciate your thoughts there. With that said, before we move into the, the final four rapid fire. You already said that that was the final question. You can't ask me another final well, question before we move into final Well, question. I guess this isn't really a question. If there's but folks that are podcast, listening, you can do whatever you want. I don't have to answer it though, right? <laughs> this is purely for your benefit, Lou. If 
folks want to get access to you. Is there a spot that you direct them, um, whether when it comes to learning more about your strategies or your consulting or your training or anything around recruiting? Is there a website or any contact information you, you want to throw out? You can certainly uh, go to hirewithyourhead.com and join our book club. Buy okay. the book and join the book club. You can certainly find me on LinkedIn and follow me there. I don't think I have any more space to take uh, connections, but you certainly can follow me there. And you can go to uh, performancebasedhiring.com and learn about our training programs. So that would be the best way to do it. Go to hirewithyourhead.com, join the book club, uh, performancebasedhiring.com, learn about our training, or just follow me on LinkedIn because I write a lot of, I won't say pithy stuff. Maybe it's not spelled that same way, but I write some stuff that's somewhat reasonable. Okay. Um, all right, cool. Well, let's uh, let's wrap this thing up with some rapid fire questions. Who is the best recruiting firm in the game? I don't. Um, I can't answer that because I there are a few good recruiting firms. I find uh, Titus Talent interesting search firm. It's an RPO. They offer a one year guarantee based on the performance. of Objectives. They do it exactly the way I want to do it. Probably not, but as a RPO, they're an interesting firm. So that's Titus Talent. Titus There's Talent. a lot of individual recruiters who have been to our program who actually do it one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, but as a total firm, I'm not positive there's anybody out there. But Titus Talent would be one I would recommend every now and mm -hmm. then. Okay. What is the best part of living in Laguna Beach? Oh, God. Laguna Beach. And someone says I take a walk every day, um, and it says – if you live, if you live by the beach, life is good enough, and you live by the beach. So it's, let's say this: living in Laguna Beach, California, is pretty cool, and I'm glad to live here. And I've been married 50 years plus, uh -huh. and I live here, and I love living by the beach. So it's a pretty cool place. That's awesome. I'm a huge fan of Laguna Beach too. Where do you live, Patrick? I live in San Francisco. Okay. Yeah, I grew up just north of the Golden Gate Bridge, and I live in the I city. Marin County, we talked about that last yeah. week, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, what is the hardest part of writing a best-selling book? Let's say this, writing it, it is such a pain in the neck. It is not a positive experience. <laughs> uh, it's You're rewriting. I mean, I literally, you write a first book. It took me, well, it first takes 60 days to write it, maybe 90, and another three to six months to rewrite it. No matter what I did, it was never good enough. You're rewriting, rewriting, rewriting. It is yeah. hard, painful work. I don't enjoy writing. I think I like the concepts. Yeah. But putting a book yeah. together is very, very difficult. Um, and you got a bunch of publishers who don't care. They just want to sell the book. And, you know, so it's it's hard work. It's not a, yeah. in my mind, I'm not a great writer. It's I think the content is good yeah. and it's been rewritten, but it's, it's hard work and uh, important work, yeah. but it's not yeah. fun work. Noted. Okay, final question for you, Lou. Obviously, you uh, have been involved in lots of companies. You've been on the hiring side of things, um, you know, with uh, your own uh, recruiting practice and, and your website. It looks like you have a few other individuals involved. Who is the best hire that you personally have ever made? Ooh, that's an interesting question. I, there's so many that I can't really say. I can almost say... My favorite client was a company that really focused on performance. Okay. And I would even say that CFO, who's still a pain in the neck, but he <laughs> understood it was like this paradigm shift to him is he focused on performance. So that guy was a great guy. I, so I don't know that I could say I have a great individual candidate. Disney was a huge client of ours mm -hmm. and he placed a lot of people. And I remember this one woman. So this was an interesting story. We should probably end it with that. And I don't know if she was the best hire, but uh, there was a woman she was at, I think six or seven years with PricewaterhouseCooper. Disney needed at the corporate level, a director of accounting. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, and I, knew, I became good friends with the number two the VP controller at Disney. And he calls me up and he said, Lou, uh, I really like her, but she doesn't have enough accounting. She doesn't have enough industry experience we can't hire tell her she's not going to get the job so i'm going to call this woman up and she said this is the woman i didn't even have a chance she said lou i'm not going to take this job unless they do these seven things mm -hmm. we got to have a bigger team they're never going to accomplish these objectives she went through this whole litany of things they had to do and i didn't even have to tell her she wasn't going to get the job <laughs> but that's what she I, she said i will not take the job unless the company does this so i called that same afternoon i called the 
VP controller Disney up. I said, I think his name is Neil. I said, Neil, you got to hear this woman. This is unbelievable. You got, and I told him what just happened. He said, that's pretty interesting. I got to talk to her. So they met again and he hired her and she did all of these things. And then she got promoted to some VP of one of the divisions. I don't want to say that she was the best hire, but she had a vision for that job of what had to be done. And she convinced that company that this is the way to do it. And Disney agreed. And that became my problem solving question. I just asked people, how would you solve this problem? And I asked people to solve the problem. And generally people have, I don't care if you're an entry level accountant or first level engineer, you understand the steps needed to solve the problem. So that became my second question. My first question is, what have you accomplished? My second question is, hey, we need this done. How would you go about doing it? Mm -hmm. I call them the anchor and visualize, the ability to visualize the future and come up with a plan and anchor with something you've accomplished that's comparable is a great insight that you will be successful in the job. Mm -hmm. And candidates, all of the candidates can do those things, become my favorite candidates and my best candidates. And it's true. I didn't care what the job was. If they could do both, they had a career that was long lived. They'll take it as far as they want to take their, take their careers to go. Yeah. Okay. Nice. I like that. That is a good spot to end. Um, well, Lou, I really appreciate you shedding light on a lot of these concepts and the specific strategies that you've put together. Um, and I, I highly recommend people go buy your book, uh, Hire With Your Head. And um, I think, I know us personally, like we're starting to build out our own internal recruiting team and hiring managers and integrating the rest of the team with some of the hiring process. And so I really appreciate the, um, knowledge that you've dropped and the time that you spent. Happy to do it. Thank you. I thought you were going to ask me some tough questions. Well, I guess <laughs> some of them were tough. Maybe next time. Maybe, maybe we'll do we're it again. Good. Maybe we'll do it again, Lou, and I'll, uh, I'll drop some, uh, some tough ones on okay. you. Okay. Make sure you avoid the 90 day wonders. Uh, <laughs> the 90 day wonders are you hire them and 90 days later you wonder why. So, um, Oh my God. You gotta be oh, careful. I've met some 90 day wonders. So. Yeah, we all have. <laughs> Um, will do. I will uh, look to avoid those guys. And Lou, I will plan on speaking with you soon. Thank you, man. Great. Look forward to it. Thank you very much for inviting me here, Patrick. Good luck. Bye now. Please download, subscribe, and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening on. And feel free to reach out to me at pat at evolvedbrokerpodcast.com with any comments or suggestions for the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by First Insurance Funding. First is the leading premium finance company in insurance and is known throughout the industry for their personalized service and quote flexibility. If you're tired of sending quote requests for smaller premiums to multiple companies, not leaving enough time to negotiate larger opportunities, then choose First as your primary financing source and experience the first difference today. 